Good evening. How's everyone doing? Just to let you know, this Sunday we are beginning a new series about faith. It's called Believe, and so excited about that, to get started on that. The important things of faith, even as the author to Hebrews writes, without faith it's impossible to please God. And so we want to look at what faith looks like, why is it so important, and look at some examples of it throughout Scripture. And it should be an exciting time as well as a time that actually encourages and stimulates us in our faith towards the Lord. But tonight we are in Romans chapter 15. We are almost at the end of Romans We are going to have uh, one more talk next week on Romans 16 and some kind of recap of the points of the book since next chapter he's pretty much kind of thanking people and mentioning a lot of names. We'll look at that briefly, but really kind of recap the book. And even now, Paul is beginning at the end of this to, to try and wrap up all the things that he has said. And he has presented a lot to this church in Rome, a church that is in the heart of the known world at that time, a church that has dealt with a lot of obstacles, divisions. Uh, The Jews had been kicked out of Rome not too long prior to him writing this book and had just come back into Rome and now you had the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers who were already there and some Gentile believers who had been proselytes all coming together and so you've got this frame of mind in all these different camps and Paul has been trying so hard to say We are the family of God. There is a new humanity that God is establishing through the person of Jesus Christ. God has fulfilled his promise to the Jewish people. That's what it means by the righteousness of God. God kept his word to Abraham. And remember, we've talked about this over and over again, the idea of this theology in the Hebrew mind. There is one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And he has redefined that one God to now include the person of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord and God over all, who is blessed forever. And so the one God is now inclusive of the person of Jesus Christ. God had made a covenant with a man. Remember, God was going to bring salvation to the world through Abraham, not the man himself, but through his seed. And so Paul points out that, well, how was God going to do it? Did God fail? Because in the Hebrew mind, Abraham was supposed to, through his lineage, raise up a people who were then going to rule. But they weren't in rule. They were in exile. That meant that God in the Hebrew mind could not fulfill his promise because we're not yet in a position of ruling. And the end time, the eschatology, was when we are in a position of ruling, then God could usher in his kingdom because we will be in the rightful place. We have God's law. We will establish the law here on earth. 
but they were in exile while this was taking place. So they knew it couldn't happen yet. That's why they were pushing to eliminate Rome, to try and get themselves in a position. They felt that that was their mandate, that was their purpose. Paul said, no, God did fulfill his promise to Abraham through the faithful Israelite Jesus. And so it is completed because God did that work through the person of Jesus Christ. And that's, again, what the righteousness of God is all about. It's not just that God is right and he's doing the right thing. It's that God kept his promise, did what he said he would do to your forefather, Abraham. And so now we see that through Christ, we are one. This one family, both the Jews and the Gentiles, that there is no difference. And last week we were talking about the variances that were there with the people, with the Jews and with the Gentiles, and how they weren't supposed to look at those differences, that they were supposed to see themselves as being together. They were to be united. He talked about the strong and the weak. And in verse 5 of chapter 14, he says that each should be fully convinced in their own mind. So it's not, well, am I right or am I wrong concerning what foods I can eat? Do they have to be kosher foods or not? And Paul said, yes. Yes, what? Am I right or wrong? You need to be convinced. You're doing what God wants you to do. Well, what day should I worship? Should I be worshiping on the Sabbath, the Saturday? Or is it on the new day, Sunday, when Christ was risen? And that's the, the new day of worship. Which is the right day to worship God? And Paul says, yes. And what do you mean, yes, Paul? He says, you need to be convinced in your own mind you're doing what God wants you to do. And he went on to say in verse 7 of chapter 14 that we... Don't live for ourselves alone. His whole point is it doesn't matter if you worship on Saturday or Sunday, if you eat pork or not. What matters is if you are living for your brothers and sisters. You're not living for yourself alone. And so that was the point that he was making in chapter 14. And now in chapter 15, he kind of carries that torch on a little bit further. And he says in verse 1, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should, be, each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. And so he starts off with a we who are strong should bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Who are the ones who are strong? Well, the ones who are like-minded to Paul, he's saying, which would be those who actually enjoy the freedom that God provides. He tells us that we are to live or to do things that lead to peace. In chapter 4, verse 19, let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace to the mutual edification. Those who are strong are those who actually see that 
there is nothing in itself that is unclean. That's what he said in chapter 14, that we know that there is nothing that God has made in verse 14 that is unclean. Then for that, we understand. So the person who's free from the obligations, that's who is strong. We talked about that last week. It's not the legalist who's strong, the one who's regiment in how they worship God, and this is how it's done, and this is how it's done, and you don't stray from this beaten path. No, the one who is considered strong is the one who recognizes that God has now made everything clean through the person of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that there aren't things that we can't do. There isn't things that are still sinful, but he's saying in regard to these things concerning the law, which had to do with the uh, food that they ate, the purity laws, which were the food they ate, the Sabbath and circumcision, those things were no longer the requirements that God placed on them. And so those are the ones who are strong, but each of us should please our neighbor for their good to build them up. It's similar to Philippians chapter 2. In verse 3, where Paul says, don't do anything of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you, the interests of others. And so again, you are brothers and sisters, care for one another. You who are strong, you who know that you have the freedom, you who can prove your case, make sure you care more about them than you do proving yourself right. And boy, isn't that something that is necessary? Isn't that something that we really should have today? We're, we're so about proving what is right. But you see, this fellowship that we have, this connection we have in Christ is to be one that is marked by consideration, one that shows consideration for others. It's the toleration which knows that a man is not going to be won more easily by surrounding him in an atmosphere or attacking him with a battery of criticism, but he's going to be one easier by surrounding him with consideration and concern. No one does well when they are belittled. No one likes being put down. And so you have a, a brother, a sister, who has a belief that is just a little skewed. And you know it's out there. How are you going to win them over? Is it going to be by criticism, being critical? No, no one is won over by those things, but it's by consideration. You surround them in an atmosphere of love, and then they come around because now they're willing to listen to you because you're not putting them down. And so we are to be a group that is marked by consideration. Okay, that will quiet those arguments when we are considerate. That will still them from those things. And remember, Christ is the one who unites us. He unites us by the things that we have in common. And the things we have in common is greater than the things that would divide us. We who believe in Jesus, who put our faith in his work on the cross, that alone separates us and whatever else you might believe, whether you believe in a, a 
pre-tribulation or post-tribulation rapture, whether you believe in the gifts of the Spirit or not the gifts of the Spirit, whether you believe that uh, church should have certain structure or not certain structure, elders or priests or whatever, those things pale in comparison to what unites us in the person of Jesus. And if we had any idea how magnificent the work of Christ was, we would stop being so petty with the smaller things because what we have in common is so incredible that I can tolerate you wanting to worship on a Saturday and not wanting to eat pork. I can tolerate that you think worship needs to be done this way or that it shouldn't be done this way, that music should sound like this or shouldn't sound like this. Those things pale in comparison to the person of Jesus and what he has done for us that we have in common. And we need to hold on to that because that is the heart of Christ. That is what God has for us and what God desires to do in us through Christ. And so we need to maintain that attitude because we are not here to please ourselves, that we are to look to our neighbors to help them just as Christ did. So what he says in verse three, he didn't please himself as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me for everything that was written, the importance of scripture and its influence in our life in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. You see, we as followers of Jesus are realists, but we're not pessimists. We have hope. We are to have hope and it's not a cheap hope. It is not an immature hope, which is optimistic because it doesn't see the difficulties around us. We just close a blind eye to all the problems. No, it's a mature hope. It recognizes those things. It encounters those things, but it experiences the faithfulness of God through those things. Our hope has never, our hope has seen everything and has endured everything. And remember when Paul was writing to the church at this time, they were suffering persecution. They were going to suffer even more persecution. It was on their minds. This was written again in mid-50 AD. In 70 AD, Rome was going to go and wipe out Jerusalem. Christianity was going to go under intense persecution through Nero. And these things were already starting to snowball. We talked about that a little bit last week. So they weren't oblivious to those things, but those things didn't bring despair because their belief in God held them even through those things. It's not a hope in just our human spirit. We're going to endure in our own goodness and our own achievement. It is a hope that is in God's power to persevere and to prevail. And though they slay me, yet will I praise him. And though they lead us as sheep to the slaughter, Paul said, I am persuaded that neither height nor depth, things present, things to come, nothing 
can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. In fact, he is able to work all things out for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purposes. This is our hope. This is our promise. This is what we hold on to. This is what the scriptures teach us. And so we live in this place of hope. He goes on, he says, may the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here he is again trying to bring this unity, these groups of people. May God who gives endurance and encouragement. I love that. The God who gives endurance and encouragement. He doesn't just give you endurance, which is good, but it gives you encouragement through the endurance. And that's needed, isn't it? I need encouragement when I'm having to endure. It's one of those things. When you see the light at the end of the tunnel, it makes it easier to cross that finish line. Why? Because I know it's there. It's there. It's within sight. And that's what our faith is all about, right? The evidence of things that we're hoping for. Hope is always future tense. It's the evidence of things not seen. What is that evidence? It's that encouragement of God. It is his spirit in us that is is giving us not only encouragement but endurance that he would do that the same mind that we'd have that attitude towards each other this connection this new humanity should be marked by this harmony this is not to say that there won't be differences of opinion it's not to say that there will be no arguments or debates those are going to happen that wasn't considered a problem back then it shouldn't be considered a problem now they'll be quite sure that the Christ who unites us again is greater than the differences that divide us. And so we're to have this kind of harmony that carries us with this attitude towards each other, which is the attitude that Christ had. One mind, one voice that now glorifies God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, Jesus said, I pray that they would be one even as you and me are one. John says that by this, all men will know we are his followers because we have this love for one another. Again, love for one another doesn't mean we agree with everything, but we care about each other more than we care about our differences. Can you say that for the people who call themselves your brothers who see things different than you? And I got to admit, it's hard sometimes, especially when they start ridiculing you. When people ridicule you, I don't want to think nice about you. I, I'd like to not think about you at all and pretend you just weren't there. But I need to show this hope and concern. And so in verse 7, he says, accept one another. Right there, he's bringing into this the heart of his whole point. This has been his appeal all along. You Jews who are looking back to your long, just rich tradition, except these Gentiles who formerly you thought were unclean. You Gentiles who have now come to this faith in Christ and now have the Jews coming back into Rome who believe in Jesus, but they're bringing with them some of these traditions 
accept them. Don't look at them as now being a thorn and a, a, just an obstacle to your freedom. Accept one another. It's what he's been saying throughout this whole letter. Then, just as Christ accepted you, again, that's the condition, in order to bring praise to God. So when we accept others as Christ accepted us, we bring praise to God. It's exactly what John said. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. We bring praise to God. It means we elevate God. We put him in a place of elevation. We're bringing praise to God. Why? Because we are caring for each other. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed and moreover that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That has been what he's been talking about all along, right? I mean, this is really the gospel in this verse, these two verses. He's telling you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews. Remember, salvation is to the Jew first and in the same way to the Gentile. Why is it to the Jew first? Because the promise was made to Abraham. And so Jesus came to fulfill that promise, that covenant that God made with Abraham. And so he is a servant to the Jews on behalf of God's truth so that the promises made to the patriarchs, to Abraham, might be confirmed. God did it. He fulfilled his promise. He held up his end of the bargain. It's done. And moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. Remember, in the eschatology of the Hebrew mind, it was going to be when they ruled and then they took their rule to the rest of the world. The Gentiles. And Paul is saying, it's happening now. That's happening right now. That that exile that you were experiencing, Jesus dealt with it. That resurrection that you were looking for that Ezekiel talked about, that restoring of you into that position, it was fulfilled in Christ. That reaching the ends of the world, Abraham, through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. It's happening now that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. God's mercy. This is the gospel that he has been explaining throughout this letter. And then he goes on and he says, as it is written. And he's going to go through the Hebrew scriptures, through the Psalms, through uh, Isaiah, and explain to them how this has been God's plan all along. And he says, therefore... I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. The focus on all these quotes are the Gentiles. And all these quotes are taken in context. They are taken in the context of when God is going to bless the whole world through his promise fulfilled in Abraham. Through you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That's what these quotes are all about. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Verse 10, again, it says, Rejoice, you Gentiles, with his people. 
And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and him the Gentiles will hope. And so you can imagine back there at that church when this letter is being read, and you have the church set up and you have the groups and they're probably sitting all with their friends like we would sit with our friends. And so you have all these Jewish you know, followers of Christ over here and you've got these Gentile followers of Christ over here and maybe you have these proselytes who were Gentiles, became Jews and now became Christians who are just confused and sitting in the middle. You know, you've got this whole group of people and then Paul starts reading this And he says that Jesus was the servant to the Jews and the Gentiles are standing to go, wow, okay, he he was Jew. He came for the Jews. He's the promised Messiah that he's been talking about. That's what Paul's been saying. And and then he starts reading these list of scriptures and those Jewish believers are there and they start hearing that what's happening here with us is actually what the psalmist and what the prophet was talking about. We're sitting in this room together, Jews and Gentiles, and they're praising the God I believe in, the God who has been revealed more fully through the person of Jesus. And what an incredible moment that would be to be in that Jewish mentality and think of that long history, tradition that you've had and to say that time was coming, that time was coming. Oh my gosh, that time is here. Look at, we're in this room and I'm looking at, you know, Joe over there, whatever the Gentile guy wouldn't be, you know, and, and, and he would look over there and say, he's worshiping my God and he is singing praises to my God and and the root of Jesse has sprung up which is the Christ and he's going to rule the nations and he's putting his hope in him just like I am and so this is just an incredible moment of recognition in this mindset of the Jews and with the Gentiles this is what God has promised for decades this is what the whole covenant was about is what's happening right here right now and so the importance of this letter is just incomprehensible what was happening at the church at that time and what was needed this was an incredible tool and so Peter could say of Paul's writings, call them scripture, although some things he says it's hard to understand. And we've kind of experienced that through this letter. It's like, man, Paul takes us forward, takes us back, takes us forward, takes us back, and he's taking us on this journey. But what he's telling us is the fulfillment of what God has promised all along. And so in verse 13, he says, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. God, fill you with hope. Hope that God has done exactly what he said he would do and is going to continue his faithfulness in his people. That is the hope. Remember, hope is always in the future. God did it and he's doing it and he will continue to do it. But that hope that we have, that God would fill us with this hope and that hope is gonna bring joy and peace as we trust in him. You are not gonna have the joy and the peace that hope brings if you don't trust in it. Faith is necessary. Faith and trust is kind of the same word. If you trust God, you have faith in God. Remember, faith always requires an object. You don't just have faith, you have faith in something. We have hope in something. And if our hope is in God, trusting in him, then the joy and the peace comes in our life so that we can then overflow with hope by the power of his spirit. You didn't just get hope for you. You got hope so it would overflow and spill out towards the others. Have you ever been with someone who just is filled with joy? And you might be having a bad day and they come up to you and they just smile. Hey, man, it's going to be okay. And they just encourage you and their smile almost encourages you. First, you're kind of angry at them because I don't want you to be happy right now. I want you to get upset like me. I want you to feel my pain. I want you to get down. Okay, I'm down. But they can. They just want to overflow hope into your life and joy and say, hey, man, it's okay. Why don't we pray? Because I know God is at work and I know he's going to do something. And they encourage you. And pretty soon, their hope starts to become your hope. Their joy starts to overflow into your life. They come and they put their arm around you and say, hey, I'm with you, man. It's okay. We're going to get through this together. And all of a sudden, you feel better because you're not by yourself. And the hope that they have is now actually overflowing onto you. And so Paul has brought them to this place. And he goes on and he's going to kind of give an explanation of who he is, what he's doing. Again, here is the purpose of his letter. Verse 14, I myself am convinced, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. When I read that, I started thinking about how he said similar things to the Corinthian church right before he blasted them. And he told them how they were just set aside for God's use, that they were the people of God. And as he's reading this, why is he so confident? I mean, this word, it's just, I was thinking, you know, would I say this to our community? You know, brothers and sisters, I'm convinced, you know, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. Did the people there in Rome have more than we have here? Or did Paul just see more in them? Did Paul speak to the potential that was in them and try to pull it out of them? Instead of talking about 
You brothers and sisters, you're full of bickering and arguing and you're a bunch of just backbiters. Knock it off. He kind of said that. But here he says, I'm confident. I'm confident that you're full of goodness. But you just blasted your brother and you just ridiculed him because of how he worships God and you did this and you did this. I'm confident you're full of goodness, filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. How does this fly in the face of just kind of the the idea of those who you are, there's nothing good in you. It's only by God's grace that you should even be here. And I was like, well, that's true. But is there nothing good in me? Is there no goodness in us? Or has God made us new? And now there is something of value in us that needs to be drawn out. It says they're full of goodness. And they're filled with knowledge and competent to instruct one another. I think one of the things that is missing in the church today is the developing of leaders. And so we have amazing leaders that are doing incredible work, but the work is too big for them. And so now they have to video broadcast themselves to other places because there aren't enough leaders rising up to go and do those work other places. And I don't know how that whole video teaching is going to pan out. I'm not confident in it yet. It's not my cup of tea. I'd rather send a person than a picture of me, you know, somewhere else. But the whole point is there is this lack of seeing what is there in others to see their competence. You're competent to instruct. Or maybe it's our fault in not making people competent to instruct others. And maybe that's something we need to pull out. It was told once when Michelangelo began to carve a huge, shapeless, just block of marble. He said that his aim was to release the angel imprisoned in the stone. And I think that's what Paul is trying to do, is release this incredible thing that God has in the church to the world. He saw it, and he's there to bring it out. Yeah, it had to be carved and it had to be chipped, but he saw it. It's there. He was confident. They were full of goodness and able to instruct one another. Yet, verse 15, there it is. Yet, I have written you quite boldly. Yeah, he did. He kind of blasted them a few places on some points to remind you of them again because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. He gave me the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Now listen to the the terminology he's using here. A priestly duty proclaiming the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Those are Jewish terms. A priestly duty... Well, there were the high priests. Now we are a kingdom of priests. 
proclaiming the gospel so that the Gentiles might be an offering acceptable to God. That offering was given to God so that it could be wholly consumed and be fragrant before the God before the Lord and so they were to be considered that offering sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore I glory in Christ Jesus in my service to God. I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done. This is what I'm doing. I am bringing these people, which is the people God has been trying to reach all along, and I'm bringing them to an understanding of God by the things that I say and the things that I do. And he's not venturing to speak about anything except for what Christ has accomplished through him. Now, it's interesting because it's Christ at work, but it's also Paul at work. And that's always the case. God is doing his work through people. And so when someone says, oh, it's just the Lord. Well, he had to use you in some way. And he used Paul. Remember when Paul says to the Jew, I became a Jew, to the Greek, I became a Greek, that somehow I might save some. It wasn't that God might save some, it's that I might save save some. He took it as a personal responsibility. Christ through me. And that's where what the hope of glory comes. And so he recognizes it. This is what's happening. And he has done this through what he has said and what he has done. In verse 19, by the power of the signs and wonders through the power of the spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way around to Laricium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. He has fully proclaimed it. How did he proclaim it? Through what he said, through what he did. He's been telling us the whole gospel in this letter. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who were told about him will see and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I have often been hindered from coming to you. I've been so busy going to these people who haven't heard, it's kept me from getting to you, my brothers and sisters. And so we see Paul has this, this spirit of just being kind of a, an explorer. He's out to just win the world for Jesus Christ. And he's going to talk about that right now. He's going to go to Spain, or that's his idea. We don't know if he ever went it. We went there. We doubt that he actually made it there. But his determination was to take this message everywhere. And so that's where he's going. And in verse 23, he explains that. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions. Can you imagine saying that? I've gone everywhere around here. I need to go somewhere else. I have no place for me to go around these regions. In other words, all these areas have the gospel. And since I have been longing for many years to visit you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. And here he mentions Spain. Spain was at the western end of Europe. It was one of the, since the limit or the end of the civilized world. 
And so when he talked about going to the ends of the earth, when the Lord said that, Paul probably had in his mind Spain. Okay, that's the remote end of Europe. That's the end of this civilized world. And the very fact that it was such would actually be Paul's lure. If I get the gospel there, we've done it. We've taken it to the ends of the earth. It would be his lure to just kind of preach there. And he would characteristically, he'd always want to take this gospel of God as far as he could. If he found somewhere further, he'd say, okay, let's get it there. Remember he said, I need to go to Rome. Why? Rome's the capital. I need to get there. And then I need to go to Spain. I need to get to the ends of the earth. Spain also at this time was experiencing just kind of this incredible blaze of genius. There was just an incredible surge that was taking place. Many of the greatest men in the empire were Spaniards. Lucan, the epic poet, uh, Marshall uh, was an epigram. Uh, All these names, great teachers, orators came from Spain. And above all, the Stoic philosophers, some of the highest Stoic philosophers came from Spain. And so one of them was actually the prime minister of Nero. He was a Spaniard. And so it may be that Paul was saying to himself, if I could reach this place, imagine what faith in Christ could do with these people. Isn't that just a great way of thinking? When you hear like maybe a talk or you see like a TED talk and you hear some guy who's just this prominent atheist and you think of them and instead of thinking, oh, that guy's an enemy against the gospel, just imagine Paul thinking, man, if God gets a hold of him, imagine what he'll do. See, because everyone's an atheist until they're not. Right? I mean, it's, it, all it takes is a moment. You know, Paul was persecuting the church and then he was not. You know, sometimes people are closer to God than we would imagine. And maybe their soul is calling out and knows that there is a God. Their mind is just getting in the way. But Paul would see these people and say, wow, you know what? If we could get the gospel there, imagine what we could do. What a great concept. That's something that we should maintain. And so I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. Now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the Lord's people there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have not shared in the Jews' spiritual blessing, they owe it to the Jews to share with them their material blessing. So after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this contribution, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. As he starts to talk about those contributing to the Lord's people in Jerusalem, remember, in Jerusalem is where the gospel really began. But the temple worship was a big part of that community. It's much like if you go to some cities and they have a military base there. And you find out that that military base is pretty much the economy of that city. 
when we went um, to visit my son in South Carolina, that was the case. It was like the whole reason this city is here is because of this military base. And it provides the economy. And if that base were to ever close down, guess what? Those people would be in bad shape. Well, the temple was the center of all this commerce and way of worship. Imagine what happens when all these Jews come to faith in Jesus and lose their jobs because they're not allowed in the temple anymore or to be a part of this. And so now you've got a lot of people who are struggling and that's where there's a lot of persecution taking place. And so Paul says, well, we need to bring this contribution to them. And we talked about this earlier. The whole point was get the Gentiles to contribute to them. And he explains why, because you owe it to them. You're receiving a blessing that they have handed down to you so you can give to them what you have materially to bless them for the blessing you've received. Also, what it is meant to do is start to erode that division that is there between the Jews and the Gentiles. See, it's really hard when someone is giving something to you to put them down. Ah, those Gentiles, I can't believe them. Yeah, they don't know what it's like. They're helping you. Oh, kind of takes the wind out of your sail. You know, it's like, oh, well, that was nice of them, right? It's like, okay, it makes you kind of eat your words. They are good after all. And so he's really trying to do that as well. And so after he completes this journey, goes there, he hopes to visit Rome on his way to Spain again, we have no record of him actually making it there um, to Spain. Um, he encountered some problems in Jerusalem and went to Rome uh, where he was later martyred and died. Verse 30 says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. And, and this really touched me just as Paul is asking them to pray for him. He says, pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea and that the contribution I take to Jerusalem may be favorably received by the Lord's people there so that I may come to you with joy by God's will and in your company be refreshed. The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Recognizing that he needed them and letting them know that he needed them, I think is an important thing. When you reach out to someone for help, you are elevating them above yourself. Hey, I, I need some help. I need your prayer. Oh, you need my prayer? It gives you a sense of, well, you're coming to me because I have the ability to give something to you. And it's amazing what that does in a person when you say, hey, I, I need your prayer. Oh, it makes them feel important. And Paul wasn't doing it just to make them feel important. Paul was doing it because they were important. And there's a, that's a big deal. And there's a big difference between just wanting to make someone feel important and actually believing that someone is important. And Paul, I believe, was coming to them saying, pray for me. This is what's happening. That I could be you know, safe with the unbelievers in Judea. Now, who are the unbelievers in Judea? 
those who didn't believe in Christ, those who were actually even Jewish. Again, think of what that's doing to the Jewish believer's mind. Oh, wow. These people who I've been trying to hold pride in are the people who are now going to be bringing harm to you. Again, it polarizes what's really happening. In Christ, we have much more in common than we do even with those outside. You know, it's amazing how we can confuse the way we see each other and the things we take pride in, especially when it comes to ethnicity and prejudice. You know, I might say, yeah, I'm Italian, yeah, yeah, and I'm proud of my Italian heritage, but I probably have more in common with an African-American than I do with a person from Italy who lives here in the United States. We probably watch similar TV shows. We drive the same freeways. We speak the same language. But I'm Italian. He's Italian. Yeah, but he eats totally different food. He's used to totally, he uses different money, all these things. I have more in common with this person. Now, it doesn't mean I don't have differences, but it's amazing how I could try to connect myself with a person just because of ethnicity who I have less in common with than a person here. That even though I have uncommon things, I probably have more in common. And Paul is trying to get the church to see you have Christ in common. That is more than everything that you don't have that's not in common. And he's telling them, hey, I hope to see you. And then he ends the letter, but then there's another chapter, right? The God of peace be with you all. Amen. Isn't amen supposed to be the end? And then he goes, I commend. He goes on and we'll talk about Phoebe and the deacons and some of the other people next week. Any questions on this chapter and just some of the things that we talked about? Any thoughts come to mind? No? Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for these words that bring encouragement to us, Lord, that give us understanding of, Lord, how we are to live with one another. And I pray, Lord, that we would be motivated by these things, that they would stir within us, Lord, and you would allow them to just echo in our hearts and our minds so that we would be able to remember and put them into practice in our lives. We thank you for being a God of hope, a God who has given us hope that we can trust in you and you give us your joy, you give us your peace. And Lord, may those things overflow from our lives to the people around us. May we recognize we are not here for ourselves, Lord, that we are here to bless the world around us. Help us to do so, even as you did, Lord. We ask it in your name. Amen.